Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with David Blight. David, how are you doing? Uh, thanks, Josh. Uh, good to be back on with you. Glad to have you here. And we were talking about, you know, one of the top level things is abolition as a, what's the right word, a role model movement for many future movements of changing the United States and also all, all over the world. And I've looked at it as a role model for sustainability. It's not exactly the same thing, but has many things in common, especially changing culture. And there's something that I really want to share with you that has come up since the last time we spoke. And I wonder if I can give you some background on it. Go ahead. And we've spoken separately about how the parallels of abolition and other movements. So we may get back into that. Oh, oh I have to mention also, I was at a bookstore down the, at, at the end of my block. And I was just browsing, and your book was right there, big on display, on uh, Frederick Douglass. So I was very happy to see you there. It's always good to hear. Yeah, <laughs> it hasn't faded yet. <laughs> nope, and it says big letters, Pulitzer Prize winner. And I hope you don't mind. I have the book on hold at the library, so I didn't buy it, <laughs> but I am going to finish it, and I'm very much looking forward to it. They killed five trees to print that one book. I'm sure. Well, it is a big book. Yeah. And so I have been, when I grew up, I learned in school, Emancipation Proclamation, 13th Amendment, that's about it. Mm. And since then, I've recently, what's really been getting me excited has been, I guess part of it was learning how difficult it was for the 13th Amendment to pass. Because if mm -hmm. it passed, then that means other legislation today might be Pass my, you know, it gives me courage to work on things today. Also, your work, Jim Oak's work, Sean Wilenz's work that we talked about last time, learning about freedom national and no property in man, that there was a tradition, I guess, just before we recorded, we were talking about William Lloyd Garrison and also Frederick Douglass. And I think William Lloyd Garrison, as I understood, as I understand, read the Constitution as being pro-slavery. That's it. End of story. And that's why he burned it. That mm -hmm. as Frederick Douglass learned more about it, he began to read it as not pro-slavery, but that the default was freedom. And there were several states that were slave states, but that the default was freedom. And that set the groundwork for eventually a Republican Party and, for, and Abraham Lincoln to kind of in some ways maybe say that the, the Constitution, uh, the 13th Amendment, clarified what was the original intent of at least the anti-slavery politicians yeah. at the time of, of writing the Constitution. That if they had had their way, the 13th Amendment might have been part of the Bill of Rights. Or it's not rights, but something right then. It could have been then had perhaps Jefferson not owned slaves and his proclamations on freedom been more persuasive. So, or if they didn't have to have South Carolina and Georgia in the union, <laughs> but they did. You know. Yeah, I guess all these separate. I try to put myself in the mindset of trying to create a nation because they it could have been easy to make thirteen different nations mm -hmm. or some smaller number and meet these competing interests. And I guess slavery wasn't as profitable then as it would be after the cotton gin. Mm -hmm. But what got me really 
enthusiastic was, is it possible to, for me to read either the Constitution or documents leading up to it, like Madison's notes? Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a chance that there's something in there that could show that they intended for something like not polluting, something like recognizing that pollution destroys life, liberty, and property. And if you want to protect life, liberty, and property, you can't also protect the right to do stuff that destroys life, liberty, and property, a different house divided than Lincoln talked about, but nonetheless a house divided. Yeah, well, I do think that you're you're pointing right now toward the Privileges and Immunities Clause. You're pointing toward the Fifth Amendment, which guarantees our right to life and property. But you you may also want to think about, certainly what the abolitionists did, the so-called Guarantee Clause of the Constitution, which is that little phrase that says uh, the federal government must guarantee a Republican form, quote-unquote, Republican form of government to all the states. Now, that was, of course, richly debatable what that might mean. Slaveholders believed they had a republic. They believed it was a slaveholder's republic, guaranteeing the right to property. Others, uh, some in the North at the time of the founding, said, no, that means a society that would not sustain human property, would not sustain slavery. That slavery is an absolute violation of this uh, idea of popular sovereignty, a republican form of government, meaning you are properly represented. So there are ways of reading the Constitution as an egalitarian document, and that is what abolitionists, many of them, especially those who ended up forging the Republican Party, seized upon. Although eventually Douglas, among others, came to conclude that essentially there were two constitutions, uh, one that was pro-slavery, and there are ample examples of literally pro-slavery features in the Constitution, the original Constitution, namely the Three-Fifths Clause. But then he said, but there's also an anti-slavery Constitution rooted in these four or five elements of the document. And he, he said it was a Constitution at war with itself. Now, With emancipation, the Civil War brings us three amendments. And as many scholars have argued, and you've read them, it brought about a second kind of founding, a second American Revolution, a second Constitution rooted in, especially Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, rooted first in the 13th, which outlaws slavery, but then especially rooted in the 14th, which is the Equal Protection Clause, the Birthright Citizenship Clause, and the Due Process Clause. And then you get the 15th, which is about voting rights, even though it was was quite a compromise. So what what you're probably looking for, Josh, is a way to tie the cause of sustainability to that second constitution, the second founding, this second republic born out of Terrible war, but born out of emancipation. So I I do think, you know, ideologically and even to some degree textually with the second constitution, you have a place to go. So I've I've seen people going in this direction, although I haven't really pursued it enough. Mm -hmm. I expect to. Now, Douglas could read it. And Lincoln could read it to say it's a perfume document, but nonetheless, 
they needed an amendment to clarify that. Even if it could be read that way, they still, I think without the 13th Amendment, they wouldn't get very far with keeping slavery out after the Civil War, even if the Emancipation Proclamation could have effectively freed all the slaves. It still would have, slavery still would have been, others could have interpreted as still legal. Well, it could have been because the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order by the commander-in-chief. It was a war measure. Mm-hmm. Once the war is over and that emergency is gone, the fear was, and it's a very legitimate fear, that the authority of that proclamation would cease to exist because Southerners, planters, former slaveholders would would sue, would sue in federal court, would sue in state courts once state courts were reorganized for their property. And if you didn't have a new, you know, statement in the Constitution, which is federal law, they could have sued and thousands of them could have sued for the return of their property. It's worth remembering that we don't always think about it this way, but the Emancipation Proclamation was the single largest confiscation of private property in American history in terms of dollar value. Uh, approximately $3.5 billion worth of property was confiscated in, a, in effectively in about two years of war. Now, once the war ended, that executive order might or might not have authority. It could easily be tested in the courts. And who knew what would happen? Right. Dred Scott didn't give uh, a whole lot of hope for future rulings. No, but but it's another reason why in that first year of Reconstruction policies, March of 1866, once the Republicans took back control of the Reconstruction process from Andrew Johnson, they passed that first Civil Rights Act. And in that first Civil Rights Act, they, in effect, were, by passing a federal law, they were they enumerated several rights that they called civil rights. They didn't go as far as what the 19th century called social equality, meaning intermarriage, equal schools, equal access to all public accommodations, but the right to sue and be sued, the right to access to courts, and several other rights they enumerated in that first Civil Rights Act. That act was saying the Dred Scott decision is dead forever because Dred Scott, of course, had said black people, uh, quote, so far inferior, are so far inferior that they shall have no rights under American law and jurisprudence. That Civil Rights Act of 66, which has passed two months before the 14th Amendment, in effect was doing away with whatever meaning was left of Dred Scott if they could, forever. But I guess your quest here seems to me to find a way to use this existing and always changing uh, and always interpreted constitution of ours, the one born of the Civil War, to find this new human right to a sustainable life on this planet. I'll give you another thought here. Frederick Douglass's vision of the Constitution, and he's not alone in this, he, he, he gathers this from some theorists and philosophers 
of the anti-slavery interpretation, and particularly from William Goodell, who was writing back in the 1840s, Douglas's vision of the Constitution of everything, frankly, about America was rooted in the natural rights tradition. Uh, the old Enlightenment doctrine, which is older even than the Enlightenment, that human beings are born inherently, innately, in their minds and their bodies, and in their very uh, uh, being alive, they are born with certain liberties and rights. Now, Jefferson summed those up pretty nicely in the Declaration, right? The life, uh, liberty, pursuit of happiness, he implied property. Uh, he also named uh, concepts like equality and popular sovereignty, which means the right to representation. And he even named the right of revolution, literally named it in the Declaration of Independence. So, so there was a famous founding document that had this natural rights tradition infused into it. Whatever Jefferson's position was on slavery, of course, he nevertheless wrote the words. Now, to Douglas, ultimately, and again, he's not alone. He's hardly alone in this. He's, he's deriving this all from others. Everything about this question begins with this idea of natural rights, hence the Bill of Rights. And when Reconstruction came, the leaders of radical Reconstruction, such as, say, John Bingham of Ohio, who actually wrote uh, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, that's the Equal Protection Clause, Bingham's argument in the floor debates in Congress was now that emancipation had come and they were responsible for deciding and defining what rights the freed people would have and what this, the nature of this new republic they were going to create was really going to be. Bingham's idea was that they needed to federalize the Bill of Rights, meaning making the Bill of Rights and any new rights they would declare them enforceable by federal power. That's a huge an important point because it's a radical departure in American uh, jurisprudence, American law, uh, American self-government, because it's trying to blunt the power of the state's rights tradition. Now, it's hard to predict here just how how much you will, if the goal here is to find a way to use the Constitution to argue for the human right of survival on this planet, the human right to sustainability of our environment, you're still going to be up against this deep American tradition of federalism, the way we divide power. And as everyone knows, with one eye open, the states have enormous control. I mean, look what's going on this very day in Ohio. They're having a referendum staged by the Republicans in the depth of August, uh, vacation time, to <laughs> to raise the percentage to 60% in order to have a constitutional amendment out of the Ohio legislature. It's always been 50 plus one. So they sneak this election in at the state level. There's nothing 
made it illegal for them to do that. This is the Republican Party with a majority in the legislature just suddenly decides they want to change the percentage for a constitutional amendment because they know they're going to lose in a statewide referendum on abortion. Now, that's states' rights tradition. It's everywhere in our system. You can't get rid of it. It is embedded so deeply in the Constitution that we will live with it forever. But the truth is, at that moment of 1865, 66, 67, when the leaders of the Republican Party were putting in place the new Reconstruction plans, out of which came these amendments, they had a right to believe that states' rights was in trouble. After all, the Confederacy had lost the war. Confederacy, by definition, was a creation of states' rights. They seceded from the Union to try to establish their own independent slaveholders' republic. Had they won the war, they would have succeeded. So you got you to think about that, too. you got to worry about that, too. But that's okay, because everyone else has to. Everyone else who has ever tried to fight for, whether it's new environmental law or new labor law or new voting rights or new access to schooling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, has had to face this question of state sovereignty and state authority. And that's why, of course, we have so many episodes in our history when the federal government did step in. Civil rights, Little Rock in 1957. Dwight Eisenhower didn't want to move troops down to Little Rock, but he found that he had to in order to force the Brown v. Board decision. John Kennedy didn't want to send U.S. troops to Oxford, Mississippi, to help James Meredith uh, be admitted to that university. But he, too, realized that if he didn't, they were not enforcing federal law. And to this very day, what's going on in Florida? What's going on in Texas? What's going on in a number of other states? Resisting all kinds of measures that have come out of the civil rights tradition. Well, it's the same exercise of this state sovereignty power. Well, how about the 13th Amendment? Like when I said Bill of Rights, it's not, it's this weird thing that doesn't give rights. It says something's not allowed. So states, I don't see states saying we should reallow slavery. Well, it's different, right? It's like, it's not saying there's a right. It's saying you can't do something. Yeah. Well, the 13th Amendment did uh, <laughs> try to eliminate human bondage of any kind forever. Now, that, of course, is still susceptible to enforcement and forms of modern slavery, forms of human trafficking still exist. It's still a matter of enforcement. It's still a matter of, of law. But also that 13th Amendment had that second clause, which the following two amendments would have as well. And it simply says, Congress shall have the power to enact, I'm not directly quoting you, but it's the power to enact any legislation necessary to the enforcement of this. It's right there. The second, you know, the 13th Amendment is so brief. The first clause eliminates involuntary servitude except for imprisonment. And the second clause just says Congress shall have power uh, to pass any necessary laws to enforce this. Uh, okay. And that's also there in the, at the end of the 14th. And it's also there at the end of the 15th. 
but that's always been susceptible to the politics of any given climate in our history about whether the Congress or the federal government would indeed have the political will to enforce. You mentioned going back to the Enlightenment and Old Enlightenment thought, and this is what has come up since the last time we spoke. Because huh? right, you're talking about interpreting the Constitution in ways to see rights that might be there. Yeah. There's also going back to seeing what they were trying to do that Sean Llewellyn's did with looking at, at Madison's papers. Right. And what I've found recently is I was reading John Locke, Two Treatises on Government, which I got to tell you, I don't know if I was supposed to have read that in high school or college, but it's eerily... I mean, it's eerie how much I'm reading the Declaration of Independence and Constitution almost a century before they were written. Absolutely. It's a Lockean. Yeah, our documents are Lockean documents. And that's, that's why he's, Locke is sometimes called the, you know, the, the American philosopher, even though he didn't live here. <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm sure you know the arguments better than I do or, or the main case of how Locke is trying to figure out what should make a government legitimate and why we should agree to participate in a government when we have, without one, we have plenty of rights. And with one, well, it better be better with a government than without, or else why would we take it? Why would we choose it? And so he talks about property and how if there's an apple on a tree and that tree is just out in the wild, then that's the commons. And if I've eaten the apple, then at some point it becomes mine. Yeah. So when does it become mine? And I think you, you might know where I'm going, which is that according to him, it's my labor improves it by picking it, by gathering the acorns, I make the acorns mine. They call that the labor theory of value. You gave it the value. Yeah. And he says, do you know this clause at the end where he says, as if you leave enough and as good for others? Yeah. Yeah. You don't use it all up, right? Yeah. And that, if Locke's definition of property is what the is meant in the Constitution, then and, and he illustrates it with if you drink from a river and the river is, you know, no one can tell the river is any different, no problem. Right. But today the Colorado River does not reach the Pacific Ocean. The Ogallala Aquifer is not looking like, you know, we're depleting it. Right. And if we're blasting mountains to get the minerals and coal and so forth within them, that is not as good and for others. So if the intent was Locke's definition, and if the, I mean, they didn't define what property is, but if that's what it was understood to be, we have surpassed or over, we've gone outside of the realm of what the Constitution intended. Yeah. And it's true. It, uh -huh. It's true, a level that we see with our eyes. That's for sure. The other side, if you want, can push back. Uh, the property owner out west or, you know, who fertilizes his land uh, or uses the water, overuses the water, perhaps, and owns 10,000 acres or whatever. He also is exercising an ancient right, which is, and Locke does talk about this, it's that right of enclosure and improvement. You know, if you enclose a piece of land and you improve it, well, then it is yours. You have pro you have ownership of that property. 
But what you're arguing back against that person is that your right to that property is not absolute. It is only secure your right to that property. And this is what's so hard politically to argue, because sometimes the people on that other side have a lot of power, you know, droves of lobbyists and money. But what you're arguing back to them is, okay, you've uh, enclosed and maybe even for a while improved your 10,000 acres. But you're no longer making that river that flows through it sustainable. You're no longer leaving the water system that goes way beyond your property clean. Or enough or as good for others. Exactly. And that you, Mr. Farmer, live in a much broader world than the boundaries and the fences of your property. Now, lots of Americans don't believe that. They believe what they do on their property is their business and their business alone. Now, we've always had, well, not, I wouldn't say always, but at least since the Civil War and the Homestead Act and then later in the 19th century and even into the early 20th, we've always had some degree of regulation of land. I mean, the federal government owned most of the land, owned most of the Western territories uh, once they were sufficiently seized from Native peoples and could dispense that land as they chose. And they could pass law after law after law about how to do it. But the problem here is this, I mean, and again, Wilentz's book is great on this. I mean, he's using Madison to show that it wasn't just Madison, but a sufficient number of people who were involved in writing the Constitution believed that you could not have property in humans. Okay, but you're still up against this idea. It's the same thing with gun rights. Look look where we are now with the Second Amendment. Since only, what is it, 15 years ago when the Supreme Court ruled that the right to gun ownership is a personal right, an individual right. Since then, I mean, and they were tapping into a widespread view at that point. That's what gun owners believe. It's just their personal right, and you can't touch it. That gun is their property. Any kind of gun is their property. You can't touch it. Even though those guns they own, even if they didn't do the shooting because of their power, are slaughtering people in mass shootings all over the country. Now, that isn't a hell of a lot different from the farmer who pollutes a river flowing through his land or a farmer who uses so much of the water that the great Colorado River, which, you know, is the source of water for how many, what, six states? <laughs> At least more, probably. So this question of property is a very beguiling and contested and difficult one because of the way people tend to see it as a personal right, utterly personal and nothing else. Don't tread on my soil. Don't tax my property. Don't ask me to regulate my property. Or as some farmers even say, don't come in and tell me to take two of my fields out of production. I have cousins in Michigan who are large farmers. I mean, and they're brilliant farmers. Guys are geniuses. I think it's, I don't know, between two and 3,000 acres they have in southern Michigan. They raise hundreds of hogs, hundreds of cattle, and a lot 
of crops. But they hate the idea of government subsidies to leave fields fallow. They think that somehow just violates their right to use their land as they so choose, even though the government is doing that, of course, to try to monitor markets. They don't, you know, overproduction of wheat and corn has always been an American problem for decades and decades and decades. So without a government to regulate that, farmers will never regulate themselves. So this is kind of what you're up against. I mean, federalism is a real thing in this country. And you're left with the powers of persuasion as the abolitionists were. You're left with the powers of persuasion to change minds. And if you can't change minds, you got to get people elected to change laws that may perhaps regulate these systems we've created for using our resources because they're not permanent, they're not infinite, they're not forever. And, you know, that's why we have government. I mean, why do we have government? It's so that individual human beings don't destroy themselves. <laughs> and so that you can have, we have government so that we can have a thing called a society that actually functions. Whether that's the function of trade, or that's the function of sustainable sources, or that's the function of national defense, or, or whatever that might be. So this property thing is is a hell of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to I hope we get time to come back to why we have government because I would love to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about what you you pointed out the ranchers out west might see things differently. They're improving their land. And then I also want to talk about people want to do what they want. Mm -hmm. So with regard to the first thing, Locke seems to distinguish at least three situations, it seems to me. England at the time, even then, he viewed as more populated. So the commons was basically taken mm -hmm. compared to Spain, where you could where there was lots of new land available that was unimproved at that point from his perspective. And then there's the Americas, which was from his perspective infinite. Right. Yeah. And so he distinguished that it's a, you're in different categories when you have infinite amount of land that could be used versus it's all been divided up or something in between. And so I would say that it looks to me like we're in the, the, the entire planet is in the zone where he saw England at that point. And so even by his perspective, so if you believe in Locke and if you believe that in minimal government protecting life, liberty, and property, mm -hmm. I think that that would make some sense. Now, the other thing about people being able to do what they want with their property, I think even people who believe in very minimal government agree that a government should protect your life, liberty, and property from me taking it or destroying it. Yeah. So if I have a river going through my land and I do what I want with the river and something happens downstream, I guess one could argue, well, I'm doing it on my property. What the river does after that, that's not me. But what I'm getting to is that I, I'm really influenced by the 13th Amendment. That, mm -hmm. And could there be another amendment like it? And what I'm playing around with is an amendment saying that you may not take from nature what accept what leaves enough and as good for others. And two other things, 
you can't take from nature what destroys others' life, liberty, and property, hmm. which would be like mining and things where the leachate comes out and poisons people. And you can't right. put into nature what destroys others' life, liberty, and property. And this is purely Lockean. I believe that I'm doing it in a Lockean language, you know, using his language for conservatives and libertarians who believe in small government and minimal government. But their paradox is that they do believe in limited government and so on and so forth, but they don't want the fossil fuel companies to be regulated either. Right? I mean, because it's the right of private enterprise to be left alone. Now, the trick here, I guess, is how do you wed this new 13th Amendment or what would it be now? It'd be the 28th Amendment. How do you wed this new amendment, which this summer you could get a lot of attention with it because of what's happening to the heat, to the storms, to the, I mean, to everything around us. Uh, and who knows? In five years, uh, you may have, uh, you know, 25 million new uh, converts to this, but you've got to wed this idea to a a still fairly radical idea about property, which is that it is not an individual right, that all property must be seen within the whole of how our species uses it. And that's so hard in America because we are, you know, politically, ideologically, you know, it's don't tread on me. You will not take my things for the use of others. I, you know, my own unfortunate view of this is that it will take for this to, I'm all, now I'm all for this, by the way. I, I'm actually, I'm for several constitutional amendments. It's just the founders made it so damn hard to do it. We need an amendment that gets rid of the electoral college too. So much about our policies, our politics, our very form of government would change for the better if we didn't have that ridiculous institution. But we do. But again, this has to happen in the face of what Tocqueville wrote about so brilliantly, this tradition of American individualism. What is mine is mine and thou shalt not touch it. Yeah, and I agree with what you said earlier, is that first you have to change minds, hearts and minds, I would say. And, and yeah. Yeah. as Lincoln said, with popular opinion, you can get a lot done. Without it, you can't get much done. Mm -hmm. And so the first step is not go to Congress and propose an amendment, but to go to the people with a top-down and bottom-up approach. But from a leadership perspective, to have a goal, even a stretch goal, something like a 13th Amendment that, I mean, it took the most divisive issue in our nation and turned it in. I don't think you could get elected running on repealing the 13th Amendment in anywhere. Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. And imagine we could do that. Imagine, I mean, people, all these quotes of... Oh, I read another book from 1935 on the mindset of, of slave owners 
I forget the name of the, the book. And it's, I mean, I just copied quote after quote from it and put it in a document. If you want, I can send it to you. And Is this about uh, pro-slavery thought? Yeah. Might have been by E. Merton Coulter. Is that him? Uh, let me bring it up. It's all right. Or it could have been by uh, Avery Craven. There was a whole group of historians in studying pro-slavery thought. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But you know what you're pointing at, Josh, is in effect what happened in the original abolition movement. For the first, let's say, 20 years or so of the really active, organized anti-slavery movement in America, it was mostly about moral persuasion. Changing hearts and minds, that's what Garrison was all about. Until, beginning in the 1830s, but especially in the 40s, some abolitionists began to realize that if they didn't work for some hold on political power, and if they didn't organize to get some people elected, and if they couldn't change policy in the nation, they were never going to succeed. And it was that transition to political anti-slavery that ultimately forged a coalition in response to events, but a, a huge coalition that became the most rapidly successful third-party movement and political coalition in American history, and that's the original Republican Party. So I would suggest at least that, I'm, and maybe this is exactly what you're thinking, why not aim for a well-defined Hard to reach, but a well-defined constitutional amendment about these issues of resources and sustainability and property. And to have that as the true north, some like yeah. in some ways a symbol, but a possibly achievable symbol. Yeah. Not unlike, you know, other causes in American history. Take lots of right-wing causes, uh, anti-communism, for example, in the old John Birch Society. They had a North Star. They had a, a true North. That was to, to root out communism in America. And it went on for years and years and years. Or you look back at uh, women's suffrage. My God, from its inception to its success in the 19th Amendment, that was 70-some years. They were temperance, I guess. Temperance, again, yeah. Uh, temperance on and off for, God, 80, 90 years. All sorts of movements. Take public education. I mean, the idea is first there in the late 18th century. There's a few fledgling publicly supported schools there in Massachusetts and then other parts of New England. But the American public school uh, came out of, it also came out of the Civil War and Reconstruction. But it really got hold around the turn of the 20th century because of the masses of immigration from Europe and the need to uh, have these kids in schools. And eventually, I mean, it took generations for the idea of a public school to catch on in this country. To me, it's always one of my favorite analogies, because you can argue, I argue, that the American public school is the most democratic institution the United States has ever created. When you think about uh class mobility and other kinds of mobility in America, it's because of that public school. And to this very day, about 90% of everybody in a schoolroom in America, higher ed, 
secondary ed, elementary ed, is in a public school, not a private school. So, but that took generations to make it a consensus, or primarily a consensus, that public schools were a good thing and a great thing. So, you know, there are many models for it. There are many analogies. The abolition movement. I mean, good Lord, there were there were people arguing about the evils of slavery at the time of the American Revolution. Uh, it took 85 years for Americans to face down slavery, and they only did it through massive violence. So none of these things have happened, except you could argue gay rights happened probably more rapidly than almost any other movement you can think of in terms mm-hmm. of gaining marriage equality. That's one that people will, I think, for years perhaps study in comparison to some others and why that took hold rather quickly in historical time. Oh, man. I had a guest on the podcast who he said he was working on things with people in New York and, and they were like, okay, we we got a 50-year plan mm-hmm. and we don't know if we can get much of this done. And two years later, more was done than they expected in 50 years. Hmm. He was like, you know, he was. they were shocked, pleasantly surprised. So the book is Pro-Slavery Thought in the Old South by William Sumner Jenkins. Oh, Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I read all that stuff way back when. And it was mostly written by Southerners. But it was pretty serious scholarship for its time, trying to understand the ideology of pro-slavery ideas. So one of the parallels, a main parallel I want to make is that at that time, People who owned slaves knew that they were – I contend that they knew that they were doing something that they didn't – oh, I thought this quote was from Lincoln, but apparently it's not. But to, the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong, mm-hmm. that the internal conflict twists you up inside and you end up corrupted. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them, they would say democracy requires slavery. Yeah, that they would say we are civilizing them. They aren't, you know, maybe they're human, but not quite. Yeah, and I believe that we are doing that today. That we know that okay, I'm flying to go visit my mom. Visiting my mom is good, but I know that I'm displacing people from the land for the fuel, for the minerals, and destroying ecosystems and things like that. And so I feel bad about it, and I end up with now. It's going to sound different than what they said. It's not that democracy requires slavery. But it comes out of a similar psychological process that we say, what I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference. Yeah. If I change, it's so much for me and it divided by 8 billion, it doesn't do anything for the world. So what's the point? And if we don't do it, China and Russia will and things like that. And yeah. I believe that we today are in the same spot that they were with a big difference that slavery, you could switch by, you could divide by state, whereas polluting you can't even divide by individual. Yeah. We're all both breathing polluted air and polluting the air. Yeah. But I think that if we could go back, we in time, which we can't, we can't change the past as far as I know. If we could, we'd want to tell them in 1850, say, you may be some of the richest people in the world, but you still will better be better off if you see what you're doing and free the slaves. And that's a huge gut check that they would not go for. But we today wish they had, and perhaps we today can do what they didn't. It's possible, Josh. But I I guess I will say, and I greatly admire what you're doing here, 
both a personal and a social level. But I will say that if I've learned anything from way too many years of studying abolitionism and the coming of the Civil War and that entire epoch, it is that moral persuasion, though it can be powerful and it's necessary, is not ultimately what wins. What tends to win on these issues, and we can see this certainly with the slavery issue, we can begin to see it later with all the legislation that became known as the Progressive Era, which was this attempt to harness the the terrible excesses of urbanization and industrialization. Uh, we can begin to see it with the New Deal. We can see it with the great legislation of the 1960s. Uh, what ultimately wins is different kinds of people coming together in coalitions to affect power, to affect law, to literally win elections. If you have a republic, if you have a democracy, if we don't tip over in the coming year into a real autocracy, which is still there on the horizon if a certain person managed to get back in power. But moral persuasion is a powerful thing. Who doesn't want to believe they can convince their brother or their sister that this can be done a better way? It's why we have churches. It's why we have community organizations. But its opposite is why we have law and why we change laws. I'm all for moral persuasion. I just think in the end, it's the coalitions that come together sometimes in strange bedfellows that really get things done in the world. And I also come to believe, for what it's worth, and this is a vague theory, but people change in relation to events as much as they do to other people's persuasion. Now, again, I'm all for using John Locke, and I think it's brilliant that you've gone out and read Locke and you've said, no, look, let's apply Locke to more than what he was talking about in the 18th century. Let's apply Locke to our problem of resources and our problem of sustainability of the only planet we have. Uh, I think that's, that's a brilliant idea. On the other hand, we've got to persuade people who, I mean, you may have seen the headlines the other day about all the planning that's going on inside the current Republican Party to now kind of give some lip service to climate change. Oh, yeah, let's admit that it's real, but don't do anything about it. Don't create any regulations. Make people think you are going to be better about this politically. To make your own constituencies feel a little better. But don't do anything, because that requires regulation. That's going to require some restrictions on the fossil fuel industries. That's going to change the dynamics of economic power in ways that Republican leadership have no intention of doing. There needs to be a coalition from the other side that can defeat them, to beat them, to crush them. I've come more and more to believe that organization has to be about power politics. Yeah, I agree that, I mean, one of the reasons I'm, I want to talk to you about abolitionism is 
to know the playing field that I'm entering. Yeah. So, because the, let's say that this amendment magically passed. That's not the end of the marathon. No. That's the end of one marathon, but it's the beginning of another marathon. It still has to be enforced and all sorts of other things because reconstruct, we have to learn from why, what, why reconstruction had, didn't work, why it took, why Martin Luther King, that. And, but even passing it, even if lots of people agree with it, even if a majority, even an overwhelming majority of people agree with it, that doesn't mean that it passes. And so what does it take? Like, I don't believe that coming up with the idea and even having a great rhetoric backing it, I don't believe that that's sufficient. I believe it's necessary. Right. But that's a starting point. So then what is like, okay, so what is the playing field of that persuasion? Like, who am I persuading and how? And and persuasion is part of it. I mean, let's face it. I think it's terrific that you're modeling or making an analogy, at least, to the American anti-slavery movement, because it is the prototypical reform movement. Every other one has modeled whether it knows it's doing it or not. It was America's first great reform movement, and lots of others spun off from it. So, and you said, you know, the greatest problem of the 19th century was this question of slavery. And most people who were working against it did not believe they'd see an end of it in their own lifetime. They didn't. If you were sitting there in 1848, at the end of the Mexican War, you were encouraged here because of the roiling debates that had spun out of that acquisition of all that land in the Southwest from Mexico. And then comes the Compromise of 1850, and that was that had such limitations to it. But you might have been at least encouraged by And then yet your political party system is tearing itself to pieces. And nobody, you know, looks forward to a civil war. Well, most people don't. The arms makers, maybe? Well, that. Although, you know, there were some radical abolitionists who saw it as the only alternative and wished for it, although they didn't really know yet what they were wishing for. You know, no one in 1858 can be wishing for conflict and also see the trenches at Spotsylvania or, you know, the, the death rates at Antietam. Nobody can see that. So, but this is a very useful analogy because all of the stages and schisms and debates and fights over strategy that the anti-slavery movement went through over a, actually not that long a period, if you think about it, 40 years, are the same ones that people face today, whatever the issue is, whether it's, you know, sustaining the right to abortion, or it's, it's environmental rights, or it's gay rights, or it's, you name it increased access to public schools, etc. The model here you're choosing to follow is a brilliant choice. I really do believe that because most of the lessons are there. How do you build coalitions? How do you transform moral persuasion into policy? And then how do you, uh, or do you fully convince people of policies or are they going to have to experience terrible events that change them. Well, I also want for people to see... All right, so I, look, the earliest mention I can find of 
a proposal for a constitutional amendment ending slavery was Manisha Sinha says that in 1827, Freedom's Journal, the first African-American newspaper, mm -hmm. proposed it. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to think that if I were alive after 1827, I would have worked on that. Like how many people, how many countless people toiled with yeah. everyone around them saying what you do doesn't matter. It's not going to make a difference. And many of them not living to see, say, the 13th Amendment. Yeah. Wouldn't we want to be that today? I mean, that's... Well, you're also drawing on a very different context, though, because in 1827, that's a moment in history where the only amendments were the Bill of Rights and then the 11th and 12th. There hadn't been any other constitutional amendments. This had never been done, never been tried. And the Constitution made it so, so difficult to do. So look what it took to get a 13th, 14th. Well, that to me is very encouraging because it did pass. It was ratified. And that tells me that I would like to tell people today, if you were alive in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, wouldn't you want to have worked on, done things to make the 13th Amendment passable? Yes. And aren't you glad that people did that? Because any number of little things that had, that had not happened, I mean, it, it passed by... Yeah, but I would argue the most important thing that happened was that all out... The war. Horrible war. Because the 13th Amendment is a direct response to solidifying emancipation within the Constitution. Without the war and emancipation, you don't have a 13th. Without the 13th, you don't have the 14th. Without the 14th, you don't have the 15th. So if we play this analogy out, it's, in my view, necessary to help people understand that there are going to be events that will happen. Events that will need to happen to change people. I mean, people have argued that Americans were really changed by the attack on 9-11. People would argue that Donald Trump's first election changed us. Changed our Pearl Harbor. Uh, there are many things in our own lifetimes. The end of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall came down. You know, that's a fundamental turning point in world history. But most of those were not anticipated. In fact, hardly anticipated. <laughs> uh, so I think your idea here has real potential. And we can't make these events happen, but we can begin to understand enough of the past that helps us realize, you know, that these series of disasters we're experiencing now year after year after year and it's almost mind-numbing isn't it i mean people can think back to katrina and then 30 other major storms that have been just about as devastating the droughts in the west and then this humongous snow they had last last winter these crazy shifts in weather and climate i mean some of these events are going to reshape people, one would hope. Yeah, I think that there's a possibility for new coalitions. Yeah. I mean, certainly age is much more important now. I mean, I guess it was very big, say, during Vietnam, but I think it's bigger now because young, yeah. whatever you are, you're looking at disaster yeah. that old people aren't. I mean, we've all done the calculation, my age and older, 
oh, more fish in the ocean, more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. Let's see, I was born in 1971, so I'll be about 80. That's a full life. That's someone's problem, but not mine. But younger than me, I mean, and, but then things are happening faster. So even if you're my age, you're like, oh, it's in my lifetime. Actually, it will be your problem because you're likely to live well beyond 80 and you're going to be alive and well then. So you do care about it. Yeah. I mean, so around my birth is when that stopped working and people are like, oh, my back is against the wall. Yeah. And the younger you are, the more. And all these old people saying, well, I hope the next generation will fix things. Or they don't say it that way. They say, I have faith that they will. What can they do later that you can't do better now? You were just teaching them capitulation. Yeah, see, that one bothers me, too. I, I was just on a panel up uh, over the weekend. at It's called the John Brown Farm uh, near Lake Placid, New York. And we had a panel of uh, Jamal Bowie, the columnist for the New York Times, who's brilliant. And Nell Painter, a uh, historian who's even older than I am. And me, and we were there just with a, an amazing audience of people who really read books and seriously educated folks. And we were talking about how history can be used now to understand the problems of our time. And mostly we were talking about racial problems. But everybody wanted to land on this idea, frankly, that we got to have faith in young people. You know, that that's where our hope comes from. And they're getting more and more active. And, well, okay, there's evidence for that. There surely is. But we can't just leave it to them as though... Or teach them that, oh, yeah, talk about that. But when you, it's like cursing and drinking. You, yeah. you hide it from the kids and you show that you're an adult by... Yeah. That's when you can curse and drink too. Sure. And... Sure. Do what I say, don't do what I do, Yeah. Yeah, we're teaching them. Yeah, act like it makes a difference when you're young. That's one of my father's favorite lines about it, actually. <laughs> you know, we're all part of this. You know, I don't know. Do I have 10 years left? 15? Who knows? 20? I doubt it. But whatever I have left, I want to live it actively. And I want to, you know, I want to do something that says I was on the right side. And the right side isn't always obvious, but in some of these things it is. Yeah, so I think there's coalitions to be had here that, I mean, I think of historical trends when the South went one way and then suddenly it went the other way and people saw it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that there's something to be had here. Now, I'm not yet versed in political machinations and analysis and things like that. But yeah. one of the reasons I want to talk to you so much since reading Locke was mm-hmm. to get a historical perspective on how much our constitution relies on it and oh yeah if it seems promising and most of all is there any is there it, did i just miss something huge that like don't even bother going in this direction no you didn't miss anything huge i mean i think i think the fact that you're even reading a lot is uh puts you ahead of about 99 and a half percent of americans Locke, i suspect used to be uh kind of required reading in a lot of circles in this country I don't know that it is anymore, uh, even in academia. So, but, you know, we still live within this constitutional structure. We are a people with a structure. And we're getting a huge lesson in that right now because of all of Mr. Trump's legal problems. I mean, we're learning (laughs) what a civics lesson the country is getting, for better or worse, about our judicial system, 
about how laws uh, can be used and enforced, what indictments actually are, what parts of the Constitution he has violated or allegedly violated. So we're getting a lot of those kinds of lessons, and it may spill over now into this larger, whatever you want to call it, sustainability issue, environmental issue, resources issue. And you're a better judge of this than I am, because I don't monitor this the way you do, but awareness of climate has become so much more widespread, hasn't it, in just the last 10 years? I mean, it's fairly rare for people in high places now to just utterly deny climate change. And there's still people who would do it, but they can't quite get away with it anymore. Mm. A little bit like expressing overt racism. That doesn't mean they're not still the problem because they're not gonna they're not gonna vote for laws that would regulate the use of resources. But I suspect we have disasters ahead of us that are going to change us in ways we can't fully predict yet. But again, it goes back to your notion, Josh, of using the coalitions of the past to inform us of how to build coalitions now. In fact, I mean, God bless you for this. If you could, if you can create among young people just this belief in this kind of political coalition organizing, that's a first great step. Instead of kids all wanting to get on some gaming device (laughs) or whatever, I don't know. I mean, that's their right, too. That's their perfect right, isn't it? Go be a gamer. And multi, multi, multi billion dollar business gaming. Okay, fine. Everybody has a right to their amusements. But maybe some rights are more important than others. We don't always like to think of it that way, but some are. So, you know, one of the things that really drives me is when you said things may happen in the future that may change us. Mm -hmm. Now, the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of people died in a short period of time. Mm. I think, but it didn't, not everyone died. No. And there is, I mean, credible scientists, people who predicted things that at the time they were called, you know, the boy card wolf or, and yet now they're happening. And those people also predicted what would happen next. And it could be make the civil war deaths child's play in comparison so I'm not just thinking that things may happen that may change us, that things may happen that may, that bury us. And that, so I don't want to count on a civil war or something like that. It could just bring us down, civilization's gone. And people can look up for themselves and decide how credible that sounds. Also, I want to, so that's something very strongly motivating me. I don't want to reach, I don't want to say a civil war is going to happen because it could be much more than that. Now, I think we're over time for you. But if it's okay, I'm going to suggest one thing that if you want to engage, I'd love to keep you on for however long you're ready to go. And if you don't want to engage, then that's fine. But one big difference between then and now is that, or role models, it helps to have role models. And when I grew up, a lot of my big role models were Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, people who fought for the oppressed and came from the oppressed. Yeah. In the case of sustainability, we who pollute 
if you buy an SUV, if you buy, buy plane tickets, if you buy disposable diapers and all these, we are more like the oppressors. Now we're on both sides actually, but like one big role model for me that has stepped up is Robert Carter III, who was a Virginia slave owner and in 1791 began the process of freeing 500 slaves. And people like Wilberforce or, or Clarkson who could have owned slaves or I guess they were in England, they could have profited from slavery, but they didn't. And we have to look at, there aren't many. Yeah. Oh, Oscar Schindler, Friedrich Bonhoeffer, the family who housed Anne Frank's family. Right. They're much harder to come by. They are because the movement you're part of tends to be already comfortable middle class or higher. Yeah. Because of education. On the other hand, that's that's our reality now, and you just kind of have to go with it. We like to believe that education leads us to higher awareness and commitments and so on and so forth. And yet we know that education can also produce a Ron DeSantis <laughs> uh, and lots of others. Yeah. But I do fully believe, or otherwise I wouldn't do, keep the job I have. I couldn't defend what I do. We have to make this more and more and more a part of formal education. I don't know what's going on in the schools about educating kids about climate. At what age are kids being taught the climate's burning up or the climate's going to flood you? I don't know. Do they start that in the fourth grade, fifth grade? I don't know. What do they teach about this? Is it too controversial for fifth grade science? I hope not. So part of the coalition here can become the massive industry of education as well. Well, I think also there's what's happening, but the cause is not CO2 in the atmosphere. That's the effect of our behavior and our behavior results from our culture. That's changing culture or even just understanding it's where it's coming from. I don't think that's connected. I don't think people connect those dots. I don't think the teachers get it. I don't think the higher up than teachers, principals and, and the district people, because they're all profiting from it. They're corrupted, if I'm not using too strong a term. They are. And it's much harder to see. You know, kids might want to recycle their plastic, but all that means is that that plastic is going to end up in the ocean. So, <laughs> so where's the plastic being made to begin with, you know? Well, listen, I think that's probably long enough for today, Josh. All right. But I'm willing to, to keep discussing this with you because I'll tell you, here's what I like about it, especially, is your passion to use historical analogies, dimensions, comparisons, because without that, where do you go? You know, you're left in the present trying to persuade people, but with what arguments? I mean, you can begin with some people and say, as you just did, which side would you have rather been on in 1850, 1860, wherever you live? If you are who you are now, which side would you wish to have been on? Now, you can't change that, and nobody can go back and wish themselves into anything. But where would you have been? Where would you wish you had been? And the truth is, very you know, only small portions of us are in the vanguard of these things. Most of us are followers. Most of us are fairly silent. 
and I don't take any high ground on that either. I, I do what I do by writing, by teaching, by working with all kinds of public institutions on this and trying to reach real people. But even, even what lowly historians do is, is a minor factor in this. So keep up the fight, man. Well, I won't accept what you said about lowly historians being a minor factor because of what you said at the beginning. It's, I mean, when I first saw comparisons to be made between pollution and slavery or between abolition and what sustainability, yeah. only by learning a historical context could it make sense. Could I present it in a way that people could digest it, and then, yeah, finding role models like Wilberforce and, and Clarkson and Garrison and Douglas and Lincoln, and then, yeah, I mean, you and Jim and Sean. You said at one point you, you need or we need a, a freedom national idea because that's what built the coalition. This idea that slavery had to be stopped, had to be stopped in the West, and then eventually stopped altogether. We do need a, a and that's more than a slogan. That was a genuine idea. It wasn't just a slogan. But wow, you've chosen one of the hardest issues in the world, but that's uh, that's why we're here. I want to keep going on, and I will take you up on continuing the conversation another, another time. But for now, David Blight, thank you very much. You bet, Josh. Take care of yourself, and we'll be in touch. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com slash donate.